Glad to have the chance to share the word again with you. You can go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, to the passage that Pastor Doug read for us just a moment ago. I hope that you've benefited this summer so far from this teaching series on the solas of the Reformation. Once again, these are not invented doctrines. These are things that were discovered as the truth of God's word is, and it always abides ever since it's been breathed out by God. These things were discovered during the time of the 1500s when the church culture of the time under the authority of the Roman Catholic Church was corrupted and the people were not hearing from the Lord because the word of God was obscured. And when those who committed themselves to reading the word, to prayerfully seeking God's word in a way that they could understand and obey, what they found broke open, broke open the message of God. And once again, healing came to the church as they discovered things like these, right? The way to be right with God is by grace alone. There's nothing that we can do to earn favor with God. The only way that we can be saved and to be in the presence of God is if God chooses to be gracious to us and to extend forgiveness. Now, how can he do that? He is a righteous God, a holy God. Well, we must believe that he did something to help us in our poor dead state. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. And we believe in him by faith alone. Faith alone, not in our works, but in the accomplishments that he achieved on our behalf. And when we believe in his death and in his resurrection, that God certified that his son accomplished the mission that he sent him to accomplish, when we, when we lean on him, we understand through faith in reading the word, Jesus is alive. Faith alone pleases God. And that accomplishes in us the work that God desires it to accomplish. And we come to understand that it's Christ alone. Christ alone. Another one of those solas rediscovered in the time of the Reformation. It's Christ alone upon whom we put our trust and upon whom we lean. There is no authority structure or figure on earth that can announce that we are forgiven. Only Christ, and only Christ has the power to save us. And how do we know any of this? Well, it's by scripture alone, scripture alone. The authority to give us the message of the king, the king's mail as it were, and me, the king's mailman today, is to bring you what he said and to say, this is our authority. This scripture alone is our authority to tell us about our Christ, to build up our faith, to announce grace upon those who come to him. And finally, if all this is true, based nothing on our merits, this is all to God's glory alone. The glory goes to God alone, not us. As a matter of fact, we're meeting here today to bring glory to our great God, even in how this word is preached and how you receive it. Now, we here and this local Baptist Church believe in all those things that happened 500 years ago and identify with them fully. We believe that these are healthy, life-giving doctrines for our church. But no sooner were these things rediscovered in God's word, they were attacked. There were some in the 1500s who, with 
the Protestant reformers that we've looked at so far on Wednesday nights, namely Martin Luther and who we will look at, John Calvin, John Huss, they agreed with these men that there were corruptions in the Roman Catholic Church. They knew that the priests were living scandalous lives. They knew that idols had replaced the plain spoken word of God in the worship. They knew as well that the Pope and the councils had erred so many times that when compared to scripture, they didn't even know that they were trustworthy anymore. But what they, well, some people didn't agree with the Protestant reformers in is the pace or the timing or the manner of approach that change should be brought about. One of the books that I've benefited from this summer reading is called The Unquenchable Flame, Discovering the Heart of the Reformation by Englishman Michael Reeves. It's a very short book. It's actually quite entertaining to read. If you can believe it, church history, entertaining. Um, But the, the fact of the matter is, the stuff that happened 500 years ago is the same kind of stuff that happens today. The attacks back then on God's word are still the attacks on God's word today. And I wanted to read a portion of this. If you bear with me, endure some reading here. I think you will find it at least interesting, but I hope it will be insightful about what we still face in the 21st century when it comes to our trust in scripture alone as our authority and our sufficient word from God. So the year is 1521. Martin Luther has just returned from the Diet of Worms and he's been kidnapped and taken into protective custody in Wartburg Castle. If you were here Wednesday night, Jake Bishop just told us about all that. Get that recording out here in the Welcome Center when you leave today. It's a blessing to hear that history come alive through Jake's teaching. So the Reformation back in Wittenberg, where Martin Luther was from, has been put on pause temporarily, but it's been put in the hands of Luther's colleague, Andreas Karlstad. Karlstad was a hothead, pushing reform at a rate that people could not cope with. On Christmas Day, for example, he gave both bread and wine to the people, ordering them to take the bread from the plate themselves rather than inserting it into their mouths as Catholic priests would. The people were shocked and terrified. They believed the bread was the very body of Christ. To pick it up with their dirty hands was horribly sacrilegious. One man was trembling so badly, he dropped the bread. Karlstad commanded him to pick it up, but by then the man was so overcome that he couldn't. But it was not just Karlstad forcing fast-track reform. Once the evils of idolatry had been proclaimed from the pulpit, it was often near impossible to stop mobs from going on alcohol-fueled, shrine-smashing rampages. This isn't to deny the religious sincerity of these people. Many were deeply opposed to those images and all they stood for. The thing was, there wasn't much in the way of exciting recreation in the 16th century. But smashing up statues, breaking glass, and burning wooden images was definitely fun. The drunk and the bored didn't need much to entice them, and the whole experience was often deliberately made funny. In one case, for example, a wooden statue of the Virgin Mary was accused of being a witch. It was thrown into the river to be tested. Being wood, of course, it floated, and thereupon it was condemned and burned. Everyone enjoyed that one. On top of all that, three men from nearby Zwickau arrived in Wittenberg, claiming to be prophets who had no need of the Bible since the Lord spoke with them direct. They rejected infant baptism, and advocated the speeding of the kingdom of God through the slaughter of the ungodly. Their motto, be born again or die. The sluice gates of change had been opened, and here was the whitewater. Wittenberg was spiraling into chaos. Luther, ignoring the death sentence that hung over him, came out of hiding to call for more careful reform. 
he preached a series of sermons where he argued that true reform comes by the conversion of hearts, not the alteration of external practices. And he said that the power to change hearts is found only in the word of God, not in hammers, fire, and force. Now we believe the same here. In our culture and time, we have several different types of attacks on the word of God, just like they did back then. These radicals could often be grouped in a couple of distinct camps. Uh, there were, one sense, the spiritualists, like these guys from Zwickau that came onto the scene, and they downplayed the written word of God and said they rather preferred the inner voice of God directing them and telling them what to do. Now today, we, we have people in that very same category who basically don't want to submit to the written word of God, who find it in some way insufficient to carrying them through life and helping them to know God in an intimate way. And they come instead leading with what they hear from God. And then often if they think to, or if they desire to go back to the Bible to see if it agrees. Over time, you can guess where this trajectory goes. You become more and more marginalized away from the written word of God, to see what God actually said, and subjectivity takes over, leading you in a direction that is, has very little to nothing to do with God. On the other hand, some rationalists also emerged on the scene, seeing that the Bible that was written often did not collude with real life. There were things in it that were, were just either too hard to understand, and so they believed that the reforms didn't go far enough and taking away idols and even a, a corrupt leadership base, it actually needed to extend even further to remove doctrines from the scripture, like the identity of God as three in one. The Trinity was thrown out. Other, other things such as the virgin birth of Christ or the miracles of the Old Testament. You can imagine what happens. It would be like me up here, turning to certain sections of the scripture and ripping it out and throwing it on the floor here and saying, well, that's no good. If you continue in that trajectory, how far does that get you before you have no pages left in your Bible? How would you have any right to determine what is trustworthy and what's not trustworthy? So today's culture has not significantly changed in its reactions to God's word. And my burden today is to explain to you again from God's word what scripture is, but to explore this great theme, scripture alone, rightly applied, builds up the whole church. It truly does. Scripture alone, rightly applied, builds up the whole church. We'll be looking at the passage again in 2 Timothy. I call your attention there now, please, as I read once again chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 to start us out on our first point. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for our time in it. Now help us as we consider how scripture, your word, rightly applied, builds up the whole church for your glory and help me as one who is delivering your message today to do so with integrity before you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So I have three main points to walk us through today to help us understand how scripture rightly applied builds up the whole church. And I hope that you will see there's an interplay between the word understood, the word preached, and the word received. Those are the three main points. Scripture needs to be rightly understood. Scripture needs to be rightly preached. And scripture needs to be rightly received. And now each of us sitting in this room this morning have some role to play. And by the time you leave, I hope you will see some response that you need to do and that the Holy Spirit, as it communicates that to you, would continue to communicate to me what my role as one of the preachers here at West Park will be. So let's begin with the first point, scripture rightly understood. Now you can maybe recall, if you were here last week, Paul's burden through this book of 2 Timothy is to encourage his young protege in the ministry to continue, to endure. And we said the one main command in the text of last week, Paul told Timothy, continue in the things that you've learned and have firmly been convinced of things that you have firmly believed. Now that command is so that Timothy will remember his call is to endure. Another word there to use this is abide. Abide in the things that you have learned. Abide, dwell in them. Don't forsake them. They're gonna feel very old and familiar over time, but these are the very things that you need to continue to walk in. It's like a well-worn rut. Stay in it, Timothy. Continue to apply yourself to the word and allow the word to challenge you. But Paul brings to a masterful conclusion the convictions that he says each Christian must have to have the right view, the right understanding of God's word. And by the time he gets to verse 16 of chapter three, he gives gives us the supreme exalted understanding of what God's word is. Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. So I wanna stop there for just a minute. And I wanna focus on this statement that he says, all scripture is breathed out by God. Now, first of all, I want you to know that the version that we use here at West Park is a very literal version of the Bible. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, when you get a Bible in any language other than the original languages in which it was spoken, okay? And you know that the Bible was spoken in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. Most of us don't speak those languages or read them well today. So a great grace of God is when the Bible is taken and translated into a language that the the receiving audience can get and understand. Now there are philosophies about how to translate the Bible. Some say that what you wanna do is get the main ideas and get them out there. And other translation philosophies say we wanna be really super literal and tell you exactly what the words are. And then you can figure out from there how they apply in your given situation. Now the English standard version that we use tries to do the best in the middle ground approach, but it airs more on the literal rendering of what the original language has said. Now, why do I say all that? Simply because this expression, breathed out by God, is one word in Greek. It's called theopneustos, okay? So there's two words there, theo or theo. That's where we get our word theology. That's the study of God. Theos, it means God. And neustos or nupstos, it, it means breathed out or breath. Sometimes it means spirit. 
So you put those two words together, God and breath. It literally means God breathed out the words of scripture. Now, here's a way to help us really understand the force of this. Just a couple of expressions here and how you emphasize it. All scripture is God-breathed. All right, so in that one sentence, all scripture is God-breathed. This time I'm placing the emphasis on God-breathed. To help us really gain this understanding of scripture so that it hits us and so that we're aware of the power of what we're reading it's helpful to go to another passage of scripture. So turn now to 2 Peter chapter one. We were in the book of 2 Peter not that long ago here at West Park. I think you will remember this from the time Pastor Sam taught us. And I wanna bring up what scripture teaches about itself being God breathed. Look, if you would, at verse 20 of 2 Peter chapter one. Peter is setting up this paragraph by saying, we have seen Jesus Christ and we know him, we've experienced what he is like, but there is a faithful testimony that's even greater than one personal experience can convey and it is the word of God. Now he talks about how we got the word of God. In verse 20, he said, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. All right, so let me pause there and say, the book that you have in front of you, even translated into English by faithful scholars who knew those original languages, this book that you have here is not mere human opinion. It's not just dozens of men over hundreds of years who had some agenda and wrote it down, claiming that it came from God. That's not what scripture is. So furthermore, in verse 21, he says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Never. It was never produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This brings up a helpful image to us. And I can remember learning this years ago. When we read this, it's helpful to imagine a mighty river. A mighty river. In one sense, that river is flowing powerfully in one direction. And you can stick on that river a boat that's safe enough to keep you in. Imagine, if you will, that those men of God were sitting in that boat on that river. Now, they have relative freedom to, to go steer left or right, but they're always gonna hit the banks of that river and they're always gonna stay in. And the image that we get is God used in, by his spirit his great power and spoke out the words of scripture in such a way that every word that those men wrote was his very words, while at the same time, they weren't robots or automatons writing down words from heaven. God in his great power used their very personalities and their experiences of life under God's rule to record the words from a perspective that we could relate to and that was sufficient for us to understand who God is and how he wants us to live. That river, the Holy Spirit kept those men in it so that what was produced and what came out at the end was the very words of God. Now, Peter says, this is our confidence about the Old Testament. At this time, we're starting to see that even in the time of Peter and Paul, what they believed about the Old Testament being the very words of God was also being applied to the New Testament. 
So if you look back at 2 Timothy chapter 3, I want you to note the other emphasis here. Not just that all scripture is God-breathed, but that all scripture is God-breathed. In this very sense, the majesty of this declaration and, and driving home to us a right understanding of scripture is this. Every single book, every chapter, every verse, even down to the very words, as our Lord said back in the Gospels, not one jot or tittle would pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Our highest view of scripture is this. Every single book of the Old and the New Testament has been breathed out by God. God willed it, and then by his breath, breathed into the very words all that he ever wanted us to know. And this is why the scripture is authoritative and it's sufficient. I'd like you to consider, by this point, Paul is using scripture. You can write down a reference, 1 Timothy 5.18. He's talking about how elders in the church must lead well. And he uses both an Old Testament scripture and a New Testament scripture and puts them together and calls them both scripture. He says this, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, Deuteronomy 25, 4, and the laborer deserves his wages. That came from the gospel of Luke chapter 10, verse seven. Both of those together by this point are understood to be the authoritative inspired words of God. And then this final entry of scripture affirming scripture is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. You can write that down, 2 Peter 3, 16. That's the one where Peter acknowledges that some of the stuff that Paul writes is super hard to understand. And he calls us back to understand that we have to be very careful when reading it and rely on the Holy Spirit, but there are some who do not, and in reading it, they twist what Paul says and end up destroying themselves. So here's what Peter says, 2 Peter 3.16. There are some things in them, Paul's writings, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. This is Peter's conviction that the writings of the Apostle Paul stand on equal ground with the Old Testament as being the very words of God. And so our understanding is that what we hold here is God speaking to us. These are the very words of God in the Bible. Now, what does this mean? Well, either all of scripture is God's word or it's not. <laughs> in one sense, we have to have a conviction that energizes us for the road ahead of us. This scripture either comes from God or it does not. So do you believe the internal witness of the scripture to what it says about itself and rely on its testimony of sola scriptura? Ultimately, it boils down to do you trust that the men of God who spoke to us in various times in various ways were led by God to record his very words for us. How do we know that this is so? Well, I want to talk about the way that scripture works. And if we're rightly to understand it, we also need to know that it's profitable, okay? Not only is it authoritative for us, but it's profitable. One of the ways that scripture bears witness to us of its truthfulness and usefulness is that over time, we begin to see that people are changed. 
Have you ever thought about that before? A powerful witness to the word of God are the lives of people who believe it and become something other than they ever could have been on their own. They're changed by the power of God. The word is the power. It is the hammer that breaks open hard hearts. It is the sword that pierces even to the internal parts of your being and exposes you for who you truly are so that God can minister to you and change you. And this is why scripture says in verse 16, it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. These are four terms and they fit in two categories. The first two for teaching and for reproof are giving to us the usefulness of scripture to teach us doctrine. This is what you need to know. It's profitable for teaching you doctrine. Now, immediately if I say that word, it may give you the the willies and you're not certain why I'm bringing up doctrine in a church because you're just trying to worship right now and, and doctrine divides, right? Wrong. No, the very word teaching here in verse 16 is the word doctrine. And doctrine gets a very bad rap because there are divisive personalities that latch on to certain things in scripture and make them either bigger or less than what God intends them to be and make them a point of divisiveness. Now, I'm not ignoring that there are controversies within the body of Christ, things that people do not agree on. However, what I do acknowledge here is that scripture makes a testimony that what changes us and what affirms its absolute authority and sufficiency is its power to teach us doctrine. So what is doctrine? Well, it is explaining to you who God is and how life works under his rule. And that's why the word reproof goes with it. The word reproof is a word that means correction. And it's different than the word correction that appears next. It's basically a similar word to the word rebuke. When we submit ourselves to scripture and we understand it rightly that it's profitable to change us, we have to understand that what we learn about God will reveal in us things that are not God. Where we so often make ourselves the center of our own existence, scripture teaches us that we are not the center of existence. God is the center of existence. So be expected to be rebuked when you read the word of God. More on this in a moment. And the second set of terms, correction and training in righteousness, are not necessarily about doctrine here, but about conduct. So where doctrine teaches us what to believe and what not to believe, the teaching of the conduct of the Christian life teaches us how to act and how not to act. First, we start with how not to act with the word correct. Now, this is very similar to the word straight. And the concept here is to make straight. The New Living Translation actually translates this phrase, straightens us out. And in a sense, that's exactly what happens when we read God's word and when we submit to it, it straightens us out. I can't tell you how twisted I've seen my own life in the past, thinking that there was no solution to the internal struggles and the external problems that I faced. But when I read God's word, when I worked it out with other people and, I, and they helped me understand it with counselors who came alongside me and even in my own reading privately since that time, it straightens me out like nothing else can. I'm sure many of you can bear witness to this. When you thought your life was immeasurably complicated and there was no way out of your problems, 
God spoke authoritatively into your life with his word and he straightened you out. He caused you to understand how you were to live. And further, that's what training in righteousness means. It's just training in the right way to go, in rightness. This is what you and I need, friends. It's ongoing training so that we know the way that we are to go. This is what God calls us to. And this is what his scripture is authoritative in our lives to accomplish. And it bears witness to its authority and sufficiency when people submit to it and are changed over time. We'll get to that again more in a minute. Finally, the expression here is that when this scripture is working by its authority and sufficiency, the man of God is equipped for every good work. Now, the man of God phrase would cause Timothy to think back to Old Testament guys like Moses and King David who were prophets to their people. Of Moses, when he called the assembly of Israel to him and said, gather the people of God to me so that they may hear the word of the Lord. From time immemorial, from creation, even to now in this room in the 21st century, the way God works is by proclaiming his word to people so that they hear from him and receive life and change so that they will align and be straightened out under his rule and once again enjoy the fellowship with him that was lost and forfeited back in the Garden of Eden. The man of God is the one who proclaims that. And scripture alone is what makes him complete. I heard Pastor Doug read the word competent this morning. Either way, it's the same concept. We are to be made capable to handle any life circumstances so that when we proclaim the word of God, we will be able to address the things that constantly come up and plague us in this world. And equipped for every good work is a similar way to say that what's ahead of us is a work that is good and it's leading us back to right fellowship with God and understanding him properly and submitting to him in our conduct properly. I want you to know as well that this letter was, was written to Timothy, but you can be assured that everybody in the Ephesus church who knew this letter got there would be looking over Timothy's shoulder, so to speak, seeing what Paul had to say to Timothy. And he would have read it to them. So by extension, the word of God and its power to create a man of God also has the same power to create a woman of God, a servant of God who would serve him in the capacities to which God sends us. And it equips every single one of God's people for every good work. And on this point, what you can do is simply praise God and say, thank you, God, for giving us a word from heaven. If you want a word from heaven, if you feel some days that you just need God to split the heavens open and address you personally down here, look at your Bible. You may need some help to read it. But in, in, in the witness of scripture, what you have here are the very words of God for you in all of life's circumstances. Now, about that, we say that the doctrine here is sola scriptura, but it is not solo scripturo. Now, what do I mean by that? Sola scriptura means simply scripture alone, but I just made up something there. Solo means by myself. Scriptura, scripturo, and that's probably even terrible Latin, 
me and the Bible, and that's it. Now, basically, the Christian life doesn't work that way. I want you to see how quickly the declaration about the Bible is paired with the next couplet of information, the next bit of information here in chapter four. Timothy is exhorted and commanded to preach the word. How are the people of God to grow up in their understanding of how to use the word of God and about scripture's authority? Well, they're to hear excellent sermons. I'll explain what I mean by excellent sermons there in a moment. So point two is scripture rightly preached. I hope to go a little more quickly through this. But in 2 Timothy chapter four, you see there, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Paul knows that the church needs not just people with confidence that the word of God is authoritative and completely sufficient for them. They also need the gift that Christ gives to his church of pastor teachers who will help them by unfolding that word and book by book, chapter by chapter, line by line, word by word, unveil it for their benefit. Themselves submitting to God's word in fear and trembling. Now, how is the word to be rightly preached? In the first place in the text, what I see is it's to be rightly preached in view of the audience. And what do I mean by that? As I came up here to pre- preach today, I knew that there would be a certain audience gathered here. The more biblical word for that is congregation. All right, but is that the audience that this text of scripture is talking about? It is not. When a preacher comes to preach, he is to view the ultimate audience, and that is God the Father and Jesus Christ, witnessing everything that goes on and every word that comes out of the preacher's mouth. I became burdened this week when I read this verse, verse one. I charge you, Paul says to Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Now, first of all, that expression It's very true that Christ is among us today. It's very true that the presence of God is here when his people gather. But in what capacity is he here with us? What capacity and what what place does he take here? Well, it's, it's none other than that of the rightful Lord, King, and Judge of all. Now, it may not be good news to hear that there is a judge But we hear in this text and read that Jesus Christ, about him, who is to judge the living and the dead. The Lord Jesus Christ is not told, we're not told here that someday he will judge the living and the dead, but the tense is present and the urgency is there. The Lord Jesus Christ, our witness in heaven, living this out, speaking the word, understanding it rightly, receiving it well, is all under the divine, watchful eye of the king and of the judge of all men and women. And he is coming to judge the living and the dead. Nobody can escape that tribunal judgment seat. 
No one can escape that watchful eye, least of all me this morning. I take very seriously as a preacher of God's word, the seriousness with which I bring it to you. And that the one who matters ultimately is my savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Because someday for these two weeks that I've preached the many times in the past and the times in the future, he will call me to account for the words that I share. Were the words that I shared his life-giving words, the words that sometimes cut so that they can heal, sometimes break so that they can mend? Or were they some honey-coated words that I made up, thinking that by this time and context, you've heard all that before and you need something newer and exciting? Now that's a tendency I can tell you in every single preacher, whoever preaches, especially in a congregation like this where you've heard it all before, you know all this stuff already, to really come up with something that's more clever, at least have some funny stories to inject here or there. But one, one thing I am concerned is that we would look to the Lord Jesus Christ as preachers and teachers here at West Park, whether that is here at the pulpit or in our ABFs or our growth groups or teaching children. For those of you who serve on the mission field as you go back, that our authority and the very words that we speak to meet people where they are would be from this book, that God would be our authority and that King Jesus would be giving us our mail to deliver and that we are only the mailmen. That's it. We might learn how to help people understand it in a way that relates to them in their context, but the word of Paul to Timothy is that Jesus is coming back, his kingdom is gonna be set up here, and he's getting ready to judge the whole world, and it'll start with the household of God. Not to eternal condemnation if you know Jesus Christ by faith alone, but he will look at our lives, and in the end, he will ask us, have you received my words? And have you lived faithfully by the Spirit's power with the people that were around you to follow me? We wanna hear from the Lord at that day, good and faithful servant, welcome into the joy of your Lord. And that will only be by the Lord continuing to work in us through his spoken word. And as we yield to the Spirit who by the word convicts our hearts and brings to us what we need. And, and this is why Paul even says, Timothy, do this in season and out of season. In one sense, do it when you feel like it and when you don't. I can testify that every preacher who preaches has times when he feels like preaching and when he doesn't. And it's usually those times when he doesn't feel like preaching that he gets up and does it anyway and feels like it's a rubber bullet that falls flat on the floor. Somebody comes up and says, that really hit me where I was today. And here's how the Lord, the Spirit is, is showing me I need to change. And that's why I'm learning and being humbled that my eloquence cannot deliver to you life-giving words. It's only the very words of God. Matthew Henry wrote in his, his commentary, sometimes the message of the plain old gospel will be received gladly by people. And at other times, They'll want more than the gospel. 
So in season and out of season means even when you all feel like receiving the Bible and when you don't, when it's popular for you and when it's not. This is the power of the word to address us. Most of the time, we don't feel like it. And you may even be tempted to think that you've heard nothing new today and you'll go out of here affirming what you heard, but making no changes. I need to hasten on so that we can get to some. Finally, Scripture rightly preached in this point is to be preached with the word. Now, this may sound redundant, preaching the word with the word. But in a, in a sense, if all of Scripture is breathed out by God and all Scripture is God-breathed, then again, the only thing that would merit and give you strength and power to live the life that God calls you to is if you are hearing the words from your king. And that's why Paul gives Timothy some of the very words that scripture alone does in each individual when he says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. I read in the gospel of Luke this past week, Luke chapter 11, Jesus was talking to the religious leaders of the Jews and he pronounced several woes on them. So woe to you Pharisees, you whitewashed walls. Woe to you Pharisees who, who think you have everything right but lead people into traps. In one time, one of the teachers of the law, not a Pharisee, said to Jesus, Lord, by saying these things, you insult us also. That's Luke eleven forty five. Did Jesus at that time say, I am so sorry about that. That was not my intent. No, the Lord replies to him, verse 46, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you. Now, our Lord knew how to appropriately use rebuke and reproving for the benefit to hopefully break open the understanding of a hardened heart. And this is the burden that each preacher feels and knows coming into a congregation that there are some subjects that are hard to touch. But this is why when you preach successively through books of the Bible and you submit yourself to the hard bits, especially in a personality that would rather be reticent and shy away from teaching those hard things, the best way to do the work of reproving and rebuking and exhorting with all long suffering and teaching is just to successively teach through the Bible. Those of you who are teaching in our groups and leading, those of you who may be here visiting today who have teaching and preaching capacities, those of you going out to learn how to do this better and to preach, the one thing that I can say to you that the people of God need to build up this church and to be healthy are more excellent sermons. And by that, I'm not talking about entertainment. What I'm talking about is getting to you the very words of God in their proper context so that we know what God wants us to do. This is what we need. We need that here. And I'm thankful for the heritage that God has given us. We need the encouragement to continue. Now, finally and lastly, I want you to know your role here. And I'll go through this as quickly as I can. Scripture needs to be rightly received. Second Timothy chapter four now. Look at the context to which Timothy is receiving these words. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. 
Here's my warning to each of you. It is hard to listen to teaching and preaching. It's hard to listen to it. And in one sense, the warning comes to us that a time is coming, and I believe we've seen this throughout church history. We're, we're currently living in the last times, not because I'm a prophet, but just because since Jesus returned to heaven, we've always been living in the last times. We're waiting on his rule to come back and to sort us all out and to straighten us out like his word does. But in the meantime, we will all be tempted to not endure sound teaching and to not listen to the truth any longer. But as the word warns us, we will accumulate for ourselves by our itching ears. I tried to figure out what that meant. Almost every Bible version uses that expression. I typed in itching ears and found out that the cause of that a lot of times is allergies or earwax. Um, that's not what it meant in the Bible. What it meant in the Bible is having a propensity towards something in you that makes you be the determiner for what you want to hear. It works kind of like this. There's, there's a, a lady that came to Christ 17 years ago named Rosaria Butterfield. And you may have heard her story of how God radically saved her. She says that often in her life back then before Christ, and even now she wrestles with, is something that she calls sola experientia. Again, another made up Latin phrase, but it means experience alone. And here's how it often works. You read a hard part of the Bible or any part of the Bible, and in reading it, you come across something that just doesn't sit well with you. And in particular, it hammers home to you something that you know about your life that needs to be addressed. You know, you can do one of two things at that point. You can yield, say, Lord, I really think this is what you're saying. Help me. You can seek out others to, to journey with you as you seek to obey the Lord, calling on his spirit. Or you could respond in the sola experientia way. Well, it can't mean that. Have you ever said that before? You read the Bible, it can't mean that. When you know very plainly, it does mean that. And I think this is what it means to not endure sound teaching. Now, thankfully, it doesn't say here, endure bad teaching. It doesn't say here, endure unhealthy teaching. Now, the, the problem is, we don't even like to endure sound or healthy teaching. Now, my encouragement to you is, endure it. But seek out the Lord and know that this is the way he works until we see him face to face someday. He is exposing the intents of our hearts and moving into our, our little kingdoms and exposing our need to fall on our knees to the one true king, the Lord Jesus. And finally, listen to the truth. If the tendency of our culture is to not listen to the truth and to wander off into myths, then listen to the truth. And I wanna leave you finally with some tips from a book I have called Listen Up. If you ever want to get this book, it's great. It's actually called A Practical Guide to Listening to Sermons. Who would have ever thought we needed something like this? I mean, you just sit there. I don't know how it is. You sit there and you just, listening so often just means, hey, I'm here. This dude's sermon is just going to wash over me. You know, but I know how it is. You sit there, you're thinking about everything from your week. You're thinking about where you're going next, where you've come from, the problems at home. Little kids are thinking about what interesting papers are in the seats in front of them. 
Those in the high school and college age are looking around. Everybody's looking around, thinking, what are people thinking about me? People in the high school and college age range are thinking, what does that person of the opposite sex think about me over there? You know, I know how it is. I've been there before. I am still there. Listening to sermons is hard. So here are some things that you can remember. One, expect God to speak during the preaching time. Seriously, expect him to preach. Not because the preachers are eloquent, but when they are faithfully seeking to represent well King Jesus, expect to hear from God. Two, admit that God knows better than you. Seriously, sola experientia, that made up term, that rules our lives. Eject it and replace it with sola scriptura. The scripture alone has the right to tell me what to do. These are the words of my God to me. Number three, check that what the preacher says is what the passage says. Now we have a a group of people in one of our adult Bible fellowships called the Bereans. I hope they live up to their name. You guys know what your name means. It comes from the book of Acts where people checked out what what the preacher said. So my encouragement is that we all need to be Bereans, come expecting to hear from God, but come having read the word and check that what the preacher says is what actually is in the word. You know, it's helpful when you come up and you say, hey, point two today, where did you get that from, bro? You know, to actually say that, it's helpful, even though it might be a little bit confronting. You know, a preacher may not want to hear that, but if you come with a humble spirit, eager that we receive the whole counsel of God, it's good for us. Number four, I wanna end after number four, but number four, hear the sermon in church. One of the ways that you can accumulate teachers to to satisfy your itching ears is to be a podcast-only Christian. You can accumulate all the teachers that you want, or or, God forbid, a TBN-only Christian, okay, seriously, sitting at home, just watching that all the time. Here's what you need. You need to be here. You need to be here on Sunday morning week after week, to hear the word of God preached. Is that because all of us up here who preach it are great preachers? That's not the point. There's two things at play here. Number one, we're seeking to be faithful to the word of God. But secondly, we're seeking to know you. We're seeking to relate to you. We're seeking that the word of God would minister to you and that people around you know you. They can interact with you about what the word of God had to say. So be here, be here week to week. Commit to believing that God's word is gonna speak to you during the preaching time and admit that God knows better than you and receive it with that humble spirit. I end with what Isaiah the prophet said in Isaiah chapter 66. He said, this is the one to whom I will look. And I'm gonna turn there because I don't wanna get this wrong. I wanna give you the very word of God. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Father, thank you for the witness of scripture. Thank you for how it's rightly understood and preached and received brings glory to you. Thank you for the testimony that as we stand firm on the doctrines of the word, seeking to change into your image over time, that you will bless 
that pursuit and that you are with us speaking words of life and power into our lives for your glory and for our good. For these things we praise you and sing to you now in Jesus' name.